Welcome to the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire from ToLoveHonorAndVacuum.com, where we like to talk about how to make marriage into a passionate adventure and not just a giant to-do list. And speaking of giant to-do lists, what happens when sex stops being about passion and starts being about something that you must do? For today's podcast, I've invited my daughter, Rebecca, to join me. Hey, Becca. Hi there. Where we are self-isolating in different houses and kind of miserable, but at least we get to talk to each other. And we're going to talk to each other about a conversation that we started two weeks ago on the podcast with Aunt Matilda. Yes, the Aunt Matilda excerpt from The Act of Marriage. Mm -hmm. And you felt very sorry for Aunt Matilda. I felt nauseous. Uh, reading that excerpt. And for anyone who didn't hear that podcast, um, the Aunt Matilda story is a story in The Act of Marriage written by Tim and Beverly LaHaye, where Tim LaHaye describes an explicitly clear rape story. He even calls it rape in his Mm -hmm. book about how this woman was in an arranged marriage situation and on her wedding night, her husband pinned her down while she was screaming no and forced her to have sex with him. And Mm -hmm. his reaction to the story was how sad it was that, you know, she wasn't able to have a good, healthy idea about sex. And so her husband was unhappy, too. And now she was warning people about how sex is rape. And isn't that just so sad that she can't understand how great sex is? Yes. So no sympathy (sighs) for the fact that she was raped. Just... Um, just sort of condemning her for how she saw sex. Exactly. It was utterly ridiculous. And even though marital rape was not illegal in 76, this book was first written, I take a lot of issue with the idea that just because something isn't illegal means that people wouldn't be able to tell that it was wrong. Yeah, and I'm actually not sure when it became... I mean, that's that's a big generalization because I know each state has its own criminal code and in Canada we have our own and in Britain they have their own. And so it probably was illegal in some jurisdictions, but maybe not. There was was no (laughs) excuse for how this was written. Yeah. And so from that scenario, um, there were a bunch of comments on that podcast. And if you're seriously, if you, I love you people who listen to my podcast. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. And thank you for subscribing. Those of you who subscribed and for rating it. I, I really appreciate that. But you're missing out if you don't visit the blog posts that go along with the podcast, because I always include some extras and some rabbit trails so you can read more on the blog. But also the comment section gets really interesting. And on the comment section to that podcast, one of the commenters said something, which I found really interesting. And that's what we want to talk about on today's podcast which was that she does not think that the Christian church talks enough about consent. And the reason is because we say that sex should only be for marriage. And so there's no need to talk about consent to teenagers in youth groups because they shouldn't be having sex anyway. (laughs) Because we don't talk about it to teens, we end up not talking about it at all. Yes, because if a teenager's having sex, we don't think of it as they might be being assaulted. We think of it as, oh, well, they're just you know, not taking their virginity seriously enough. Right. And so we've never come up with a good theology of consent. And in fact, what we have found in reviewing a lot of these these Christian sex books and Christian marriage books is that the opposite is actually true. That instead of teaching about consent, um, a lot of these books are actually justifying rape or portraying things that are rape as if they're really not that bad. Or else they are um, minimizing a woman's right to say no or actually convincing her that she doesn't have a right to say no. 
Right. So what we want to do in this pot is we want to look at two different scenarios. We want to look at Matilda and people like Matilda who are honestly being sexually assaulted in their marriage because I think that there's a lot of people who don't recognize it. Last week, we were doing some focus groups for our upcoming book, The Great Sex Rescue. And we were talking to some women who had been sexually assaulted in marriage, but didn't have a word for it and didn't realize that marital rape was a thing. At the time, um, so they were able to the they were able to talk mm-hmm. to us about it and they labeled it in their conversations um, with us as marital rape. But we're saying at the time when it was happening, they didn't they didn't fully understand um just how wrong it was. So I want to make that clear. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really concerned that there are people listening to this podcast who might be in a similar situation. So we do want to talk about that. But then we want to talk about something that I think is going to apply to almost every woman and man who's listening to this podcast, which is a new way of looking at obligation and sex in marriage and how to talk about it in a very different way where we're not being coercive. So let's go. Okay, so first of all, let me tell you a story, Becca. Um, this reader question made it onto the blog a little while ago, but a woman wrote in with, with this scenario. So she had had a baby um, fairly recently. Baby, She was talking about the baby in terms of weeks old, but she was returning to full-time work. Uh, so she's working full-time. She has a baby. She's pumping. She's exhausted. And she said that she tries every day to initiate sex. And often she will try about 30 minutes before she has to leave for work. But then her husband will turn her down. And then three minutes before she's supposed to step out the door, he'll he'll say, well, let's do it now. Um, or else she'll initiate sex right before she's going to go to bed. And he'll say no. But then he'll come to bed at two in the morning and wake her up and have sex. She also said that quite often um, she'll find herself waking up at five, six in the morning and he'll be having sex with her. And she was finding this very difficult. And her question to me was, am I being inconsiderate? Oh, gosh, yeah, that's rough. And, you know, it's not only the fact that he was having sex with her when she was asleep without her consent, Mm -hmm. which is rape. Now, okay, there are marriages where couples, couples have a great sex life and they say, you know, what would be really sexy is if you know, you woke me up or I woke up and you were doing something to me. That's fine. Like if you've given blanket consent to that, that's fine. (laughs) All Mm -hmm. right. But if you have not given blanket consent to it, and if you have specifically asked for that not to happen and then someone has done, that is rape. The same way that if you had said before that you were not comfortable with oral sex and then halfway through sex, your husband began performing oral sex on you, that would be wrong. But the act of oral sex in and of itself is not wrong. Yes, exactly. But it occurred to me in reading her story that there's more going on here than just the fact that he is is having sex with her when she doesn't want to. And it's that she feels that she has to initiate at least once a day. And this is a woman who has a little baby. She said that she was the lower drive spouse. This is not a woman who wants sex more than once a day, mm-hmm. but she feels that she has to initiate at least once, if not more a day. Yeah, and I just don't, I don't think that that's healthy when you have this idea that you have to do it and that if he asks for it at this inconsiderate um, time that you then have to give it to him. I think that that comes from this same mindset that allows for violence against women to happen even in marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we need to take that seriously 
Because marital rape doesn't only look like the Aunt Matilda story, where he's right. pinning her down and she's screaming for him to stop and he keeps going anyway. Marital rape is about power and it is about getting what you want at the expense of the other person. Mm-hmm. Um, no matter how that happens, whether it's through coercion, whether it's through pushing boundaries until they finally give in and you win. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's often this power struggle. And so that's what becomes a major red flag when I hear her, her comment where she gives a perfectly reasonable time to have sex. Like, hey, I need to be out doing groceries in half an hour, but want to want to get busy now. And he mm-hmm. says, no, until it's on his terms. And right. then and, and his and his terms are deliberately when it's um, very difficult for her. So it's exactly. like he can only get sexual pleasure when something is harmful for her. And that's what I mean by this power differential. And that's what we see a lot in the discussions we've had with women who have gone through these kinds of marriages. And that's why they didn't know how to label it because they mm-hmm. weren't always being pinned down. Um, Mm -hmm. and and yelling and sometimes even we'll talk about this later too but sometimes even when there is the physical forcing of what happens because you're married it it feels like well I can't be raped I'm married and that's not true either but it becomes even murkier when the the coercion is not a physical one all the time Mm -hmm. it's this weird power struggle where he's trying to get this domination and he wants to be on his terms and enjoys kind of forcing you to do it in a way that either you don't like, um, such as men forcing their wives to um, have oral sex or to have oral sex performed on them when they're mm-hmm. very uncomfortable with it, or um, using hands in a way that they're uncomfortable with, or 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 we had a woman write in who's who said she did not like sex toys, but in the middle of a sexual encounter, he would pull out a sex toy and use on her. Yeah, she, those yeah. kinds of power struggles where it's like I know that you don't want to, but I'm going to make you do it anyway, and I'm going to show that I can. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just absolutely disgusting. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to get back to what Jesus said our lives should look like. This is this is one of my fundamental verses that I think um, encapsulates so much of what I see the Christian life should be like. He says in Matthew 20, verses 25 to 28, Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." What Jesus is saying there is that in the world, our relationships tend to be defined by power and hierarchy, and that sort of thing should have no place in the kingdom of God. We are about serving one another. And in this situation, she may feel, well, yeah, but I am serving him. Yes, but that has to be a mutual serving or else it's not real. That's why the Bible uses the Hebrew word no to mean sex. Like sex is not supposed to be just a man's ejaculation. Okay. God is not concerned with whether or not a man ejaculates. That is not his number one thing. And yet when, with the way that we often talk about sex, we think that, oh, God is really concerned that he doesn't get to ejaculate. No, what God wants is this mutual knowing of each other. 
You know, Adam knew his wife Eve and they conceived a son. Like the Hebrew word there is about this longing to be totally intimate. That's what sex is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. If she feels like she has to initiate every day or her husband's going to get really upset and then he has to wake her up for sex so that he can dominate her, that is not a mutual knowing. No, it's not. And when we talk about this mutual servanthood in marriage too, it's important to understand that, you know, Throughout scripture, we are called to sacrificially love and sacrificially serve each other. But at the same time, God also calls us to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And part of that is about recognizing where healthy boundaries are, recognizing your rights and not allowing someone to sin by infringing on Mm -hmm. those. Exactly. Because even though Jesus humbled himself to serve us and, you know, took on the, as it says in Philippians 2, um, you know, he gave himself completely. He took on human form. He left heaven. He did all of these things that humbled himself to serve us and ultimately to die on the cross. He did that for a purpose, which was to reconcile us to God. He didn't, he didn't become a slave just for the sake of becoming a slave. He became a slave to reconcile us to God. And also by him becoming a servant and humbling humbling himself. He didn't just simply lie down when someone was taking advantage of others. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at how he treated the Pharisees. Look at how he spoke to people who were using this power dynamics and who were taking advantage of the vulnerable. Becoming a servant and looking like Jesus does not mean that you have to allow your rights and your well-being and your, you know, and your psychological health to be trampled on by this person who you're married to if they are using you and abusing you in this way. And that is not Mm -hmm. what Christ-like servanthood looks like. And I have a post that says that exactly. I'm looking at the book specifically created to be his helpmate, but on how, you know, suffering in and of itself does not make you holier. And often the way we talk to women it's like, oh, the more you give up for your husband, the more he uses you, that's okay because you're just becoming holier. No, no, it's not. <laughs> you know, God does not want you to suffer for suffering's sake. Jesus suffered for a purpose to bring other people to Jesus. If our suffering is allowing our husbands to use us or to sin, then our suffering is actually bringing him further away from God. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we need to get that right. Okay, so so just because you are married does not mean that you don't have a say in whether or not you have sex. Okay, marriage does not mean that there is now a blanket yes all the time. You can do whatever you want. Marital rape totally is a thing. And and we've been talking about all these different forms of, of that can be marital rape. I also want to say, you know, it's also rape if he says if he if when you don't have sex he gives you the silent treatment for two weeks or if he refuses to talk to you or if he gets really angry, you know that kind of thing is also a form of sexual assault. If he says I'm not going to give you any money, um, or I won't let you buy groceries if you don't have sex, if he is angry and if you're having sex to stop him from being physically abusive or from abusing the kids, that is also rape even if you haven't. Um, even if he's not forcing you physically. <laughs> okay, so, or or if, and we're, this kind of leads into the second half of what we want to talk about, if he's constantly bombarding Bible verses at you and telling you that you're an unsubmissive wife and that uh, you are in sin if you do not give him sex because you are not to deprive him and your body belongs to him, that is also a form of coercion. Now, Obviously, you can't go to the police with all of those things, but they are still a form of coercion and they are wrong. And I think an easy way to think about it is simply 
if something takes away your ability to say no, it also takes away your ability to say yes. Mm-hmm. Because unless you can say no, your yes means nothing. That's right. So if someone has a gun to your head and they say, hey, you want to get busy? And you and they tell you if you don't respond enthusiastically, you're going to be in trouble. And you say, oh, yeah, I'd love to. No, you didn't consent. You had a gun to your head. Mm-hmm. And that's how it can feel when the gun to your head metaphorically is the threat of what if he, he's been yelling at the kids so much and I'm just so worried that they're going to you know, be damaged by that. And so I'm just going to try to appease him or I'm worried he's going to turn back to porn because he, he holds that over my head or, you know, last time I didn't have sex with him, he had that affair with the woman at the office. Um, and it's, mm-hmm. those things can also be a metaphorical gun to the head of your marriage. And that is important to understand. And that is why it takes away your ability to consent because although it doesn't take away your ability to say yes, it does take away your ability to say no. Yeah, and this this is what we, we what we want to talk about in the second half. Okay, so so we were we were looking before at at real instances of marital rape, um, some of which should be reported to the police. By mm-hmm. the way, and if if you are in a situation like that woman who is getting woken up all the time, um, it's okay. You know, please call an abuse hotline. Please do. Okay, get get some help um, because this isn't okay. And also, you're not the only person who's going through this. It can feel very isolating when you're being abused, or if you're just not sure, like, am I, if I'm making this too much in my head, what's happening? Just call an expert. They deal with this every day because you are not alone in this, and there are people who are equipped to help you and to sort through what you can do if you should be doing anything, even if you just have questions. Just call. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Odds are, if you have questions, there's a reason you should be calling. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> okay, but now I want to turn to, to um, a way of looking at this whole idea of coercion and obligation in a way that can that a lot of us will actually relate to. And um, to start with, do you remember, Becca, the movie Bruce Almighty? Did I ever show yes. that to you? Did yes. I make you watch that? Okay, so um, for those of you who, who haven't seen it, Morgan Freeman plays God. And of course, we all hope that God's voice really is Morgan Freeman's voice. But anyway... <laughs> Because it's awesome. But Morgan Freeman plays God and Jim Carrey is is from Buffalo and he's been complaining to God. And so God gives Bruce the power to be God of Buffalo for a period of time. And there's only two rules. Uh, He can't tell anyone he's God and he can't mess with free will. And uh, and then Bruce says, can I ask why I can't mess with free will? And, And God gets all excited and says, why, yes, you can. That's the beauty of it. You know, but he doesn't actually answer. Bruce. So yes, you can ask because of free will. And then later on, when Jim Carrey's girlfriend leaves him, he says to God, how can I get grace back without interfering with free will? And God says, if you figure out that, <laughs> let me know, because that's the problem. And and this is what we need to understand, is that God baked the universe with free will. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like free will is completely baked into our universe. Free will is why there's sin, yes, but without the ability to sin, without the option to sin, we would also not have the option to love. And so God created us for free will and with free will. And that doesn't just apply to love. It applies to sex, too. You know, like Rebecca was saying, and and I want to reiterate this over and over again in this podcast, without the ability to say no, we can't really say yes. And the problem is that the way that a lot of Christian 
teaching has looked at sex, they have taken away the ability to say no to women. Yeah, and they've done it quite blatantly as well in all of these books that we've been reading. We have a rubric um, that we created about what kind of core messages people need to believe in order to have a healthy understanding of female sexuality. You know, things like um, women feel sexual pleasure too. Women's orgasm are, is important. Um, you know, women can have a libido. It exists. Mm-hmm. Um, but a big one was an understanding of marital rape or just the, the importance to feel free to say no. And right. every single book except for how many that we've looked at? Three, uh, two the gift or three? of sex was okay. Gift the of gift sex of sex was okay. was okay. We looked at um, John, John Gottman's Gottman was book. okay. Yeah, John Gottman's book um, actively talked about consent in marriage. From what I understand, yes, it was the only one that actually used the yes. word. No Christian book actually used the word consent. Of course, except Thirty-One Days to Great Sex, which is coming out again in August. I do talk very firmly about consent. Yes, <laughs> but the point is, not only did they not mention consent, the vast majority of books we've looked at, and we've mainly looked at the best-selling books that mention sex. The vast mm-hmm. majority have actively given examples of marital rape and shown them as things that should have happened and did not mention that they were wrong. Right. Or, yeah, and, and they and they s- deliberately say that you're not allowed to refuse sex. So they actually take away women's consent. So we have a bunch of quotes we're going to read to you just to show you that we're not, we're not making this up. So here's just a few of them. For instance, active marriage says both partners are forbidden to refuse the meeting of their mate's sexual needs. And I also think we should say right now that I know we're talking mainly about women being raped by men because that is the vast majority of um, cases that we personally hear about. And that's what most of the stories are that we get. But also men can be sexually assaulted in their marriages too. Mm-hmm. And it's important that we just have a conversation where both parties need to be okay with something, especially since there are many men who have been sexually assaulted as children or who have, um, you know, a lot of sexual abuse in their past who have specific acts, for instance, that may be triggering that m- m- other men may be very happy to do. And so if a wife is not respecting that, um, mm-hmm. that's also very wrong. And we do hear about that happening as well. So we want to make sure this is clear that we are talking about everyone needs to consent here. Everyone has rights. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, so yes. both partners are forbidden to refuse the meeting of their mate's sexual needs is just blatantly problematic. Right. Because it doesn't give it doesn't give any caveats. No caveats. Like it doesn't say no caveats. Not if she's in pain, not if she's having a period, not if she's nauseous, not if she's grieving, not like there's no you're re- forbidden to refuse. And then there's this one from intended for pleasure. God's viewpoint comes forth vigorously in 1 Corinthians 7, 3-5, where the husband and wife are told they actually defraud aposterio, the strongest New Testament Greek word meaning to cheat somebody out of something that is rightfully theirs, one another, when they refuse to give physical pleasure and satisfaction to their mate. The only activity that is to break regular sexual relations is prayer and fasting for some specific cause, and this is only to be my mutual consent for a very limited time. And again, this was given without any caveats. So it doesn't matter if she has a migraine, it doesn't matter if... Um, her mother has just died. If she has just had a miscarriage, yeah. If if she is postpartum, you're not allowed. Like there are no caveats given here. Well, if she has vaginismus and sex is painful, if he is having an affair, if he's using porn, there's no caveats given. But in a healthy marriage, you could see how people would read this and think. Overall, we need to be quick and enthusiastic about helping each other have physical pleasure. That's how a healthy person would read this passage. The problem Mm -hmm. is that not everyone is in a healthy marriage. And I do 
I look at this passage, especially as someone who had a very, very difficult postpartum recovery period where, Mm -hmm. quite frankly, I was unable to do anything for months because of intense pain. Intense pain. And you didn't only have that. You also had that bizarre rash. Yes. Yeah. So it was it was horrible. It was horrible. And if I were in a marriage with a man who honestly believed that this was true, that I was not allowed to say no, except for a very limited time. And I'm sorry, but I don't think anyone would consider a minimum of three months a very limited time. Mm-hmm. You know, if I were in a marriage with a man who honestly believed that, I don't think I would have recovered. Mm-hmm. And that is important. Exactly. Exactly. Absolutely. And, and yet the way that it is often phrased in these books is that you honestly are not allowed to say no. And it says that over and over again, power of a praying wife, the Bible is crystal clear. Unless we're fasting and praying for weeks at a time or are experiencing physical infirmity or separation, there is no excuse not to engage in it regularly. At least she mentions physical infirmity, but she doesn't mention emotional abuse, him having an affair, him watching pornography, her, you know, all these other things that could still come up. But the other thing too, is that all of these authors do not mention the fact that a simple refusal for the time does not mean that you're depriving each other. Yes. And, mm-hmm. and so there's no caveats that are saying like, and hey, like if he comes up to you and is like, hey, you want to get busy? And you're like, well, I've got ladies brunch in 15 minutes. So maybe <laughs> not right now. That's not refusing to meet his needs. There's no discussion about that in these books. It's all just simply, you've got to be there whenever he wants it, however he wants it. And if you don't, then you're displeasing God. Right. And it's like, if your kid came up and said, mom, can I have Cheetos? And you said, no, you're not depriving him of food. Yeah. Or even if he was asking for healthy food, he was like, hey, can I have my dinner now? But it's one o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. You're like, well, now's not the time, sweetie. And also, but, but also if you were to give your kid Cheetos constantly, you would be depriving him of food Mm -hmm. because that's not what he actually needs. And, and when God is saying, do not deprive each other, except for a time, he's not saying, do not deprive each other of one-sided ejaculation. Exactly. (laughs) He is saying, do not deprive each other of this intimate sexual relationship with draw, which draws you together. And yet the way that this is portrayed in these books is that it is very one-sided. But the books don't just say you don't have the right to refuse. They say if you do refuse, very bad things are going to happen. And the, one of the big themes throughout all of these books is if you don't have sex, he's going to have an affair. Yeah. That's a big or one. he's going to watch porn. Yep. Right? Active marriage. When you have a Cadillac in the garage, how can you be tempted to steal a Volkswagen off the street? Yep. Which, of course, is then also not just saying, if you don't do this, he will do that, but also he's going to compare you to other people. Right. Right. Yeah, or this one. In relation to your own husband, understanding the 72-hour cycle can help you keep him satisfied. Ellen said, his purity is extremely important to me, so I try to meet his needs so that he goes out each day with his cup full. During the earlier years, with much energy going into childcare and with my monthly cycle, it was a lot more difficult for me to do that. There weren't too many ideal times and everything was just right, but that's life and I did it anyway. Right. And that was every man's battle. Yeah. It's so just she's horrible. Yeah. So she's having, she's having sex every three days because otherwise he is going to lust and use porn. Yeah. And this idea that men need sex every 72 hours or else they become these raging hormonal beasts that cannot be, that cannot be controlled and they will go out and just find sex wherever they can is not research backed. It is based in one book that was written by someone who did not do research in this field ever. 
Yeah. You know, what's funny is that in reading all of these books, I found that 72 hour cycle being talked about a lot and I traced it back and everybody ended up quoting James Dobson's book from 1975. Yeah. And I just, and I looked online, I have looked for academic journals about how often does a man need to ejaculate? And there is nothing. There is no amount. In general, if a man ejaculates more, they have lower risk of prostate cancer. I think the average is 21 times a month. If you're ejaculating Mm -hmm. 21 times a month, you get the lowest risk of prostate cancer. Just a little fun fact there. But it's not like if you don't have sex for four days, his testicles Mm -hmm. implode. It's not. You know what happens if a man doesn't ejaculate enough? He has nocturnal emission. Your body figures it out. Mm -hmm. You're okay. Now, now we are not saying that sex is not important in marriage no. or that frequent sex is not important in marriage. And we're actually going to get to that in a minute. <laughs> but the other thing too, um, when we're talking about this is that all these people say, well, this is how God designed men. And so women mm-hmm. have to simply understand that. But God is the one who in the Old Testament commanded Israelite men to not go near their wives during their periods. And I'm yeah. sorry, but I'm sure that not all women only had 48 hour long periods. I just don't think that happened back then. So you can't say that it is God's design that women pleasure their men within every 72 hours and then also read the Old Testament and take it seriously. You cannot, those two things do not mix. Right. And yet sheet music explicitly says that if your husband is using porn, you should be having sex even during your period. Here, I'll read exactly what Kevin Lehman says. The most difficult time for this man was during his wife's period because she was unavailable to him sexually. After about 10 years, she finally realized that pleasing her husband with oral sex or a simple hand job did wonders to help her husband through that difficult time. She realized that faithfulness is a two-person job. That doesn't mean a husband can escape the blame for using pornography by pointing to an uncooperative wife. We all make our own choices, but a wife can make it much easier for her husband to maintain a pure mind. And that is utterly disgusting. I am someone who has horrible periods. I'm just going to say, like you're going to hear in this podcast, everything gynecological, having postpartum and periods <laughs> and pregnancy, my body... It just does everything with far too much enthusiasm, okay? It's like a period we're going to take you, it No, even as a teen, you were, you were really bad. Like, you a would horrible. faint. You would puke. It was bad. And do you know what my husband does? He rubs my feet and he brings me tea. Because he understands yeah. that he's, I'm ill while I'm on my period. I am mm-hmm. ill. And he's a wonderful, wonderful selfless man. And I cannot imagine being in that position where you're cramping and throwing up and feeling horrible or even just feeling gross. And he's like, well, this is about me right now. Do you know how incredibly selfish that is? Do you know how incredibly antithetical to the gospel that is? And if people yeah. cannot understand that, that is so sad. Yeah. And, and he even calls her period a difficult time for, for the husband. Because she does not matter in this right. scenario. Because his right. struggles and his sin are more important to be placated than her mm-hmm. actual physical needs. And that is evil. He actually opens the book with an illustration of a couple named Brenda and Mark. And Mark, they've been growing apart after having kids. Mark's been trying to be more romantic. Brenda put him off because she was too busy. And so Mark was turning to masturbation and porn two to three times a week. And this is how Kevin Lehman summed up that situation. Uh, He said, what Brenda didn't realize was how much this sexual winter was costing them as a couple and how if they didn't turn things around, they'd probably be divorced within another five years. Evil. He said nothing about what Mark needed to realize. So even after talking about how Mark was using porn two to three times a week and masturbating, the, the way to resolve this was that Brenda needed to realize her sin. Utterly evil. 
And I'm not yeah. saying the whole book is. That's not what I mean. I'm saying this line of thinking is pure mm-hmm. evil. Because what it does is it takes sexual sin and it does not say what the gospel says. The gospel says that you are in control of your own not in control. You are responsible for your own sin. It says, take mm-hmm. the blame off of others. Stop putting your bondage and your burden of your own sin on other people and lay it back at the feet where it belongs. Cast your own eye out. Mm-hmm. That's what it says. Because we are not meant to be enslaved and we are not meant to enslave others with our own sin. When the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And all of this mentality of how she needs to be in control of making sure he doesn't sin sexually is simply heaping bondage and heaping burdens on the backs of those you are not willing to lift a finger to help yourself. That's right. And that is exactly what is happening here. This is just like the Pharisees who created these extra rules, who put other people's sin on your shoulders because they were adding stuff to scripture that simply did not exist. They didn't understand the heart of God. The exact same thing mm-hmm. is happening here in how we talk about sex and marriage. Your husband's sexual sin is his problem, not yours. Your sexual sin is your problem, not your husband's. And I just don't understand why that's so hard to understand. If you are in a marriage where you have young children or you are infirm or you are just feeling like you are not emotionally safe and your husband says, well, then I have no choice but to turn to pornography. That is utterly evil and utterly wrong. And if you are in a church that does not see that as a problem, you need to leave. You need to leave right now because it is not safe and you deserve so much more because God wants freedom for you. God wants freedom for your spouse. And if you are in a culture and in a space that is perpetuating this lie that he cannot control himself, he cannot use the spirit to actually learn some self-control and it is all on your feet and it is your responsibility at all, you can be set free. Amen. Amen. Preach it, sister. <laughs> that's that's amazing. Um, I do want to quote from two other books because we've been we've been beating up on Kevin Lehman a lot in the last few weeks, and I want to show that it isn't just him. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so so here's just two other books: Love and Respect. You know, you, you, you know, I got it. You that's know, a I given do at it, this right? point. It's, I got it. And I do want to say that on our rubric that we did about healthy sexuality, it did not score well. Love, Love and, and respect. respect. No, I think we've already said what it scored. It got an actual zero. It got an actual zero. Yeah. Yeah. Sheet music did not. Sheet music got quite a bit higher than that. Love and respect, actual zero. Anyway, he says, the cold hard truth is that men are often lured into affairs because they are sexually deprived at home. Nope. Men are lured into affairs because they have not practiced self-control and they do not have the spiritual fruit of self-control. Yes. Now, that does not mean that you don't have to address sexual deprivation later on. No. But... It is not the cause of an affair. Um, or, But his needs, her needs, this, Willard Harley, this is what he said. Should my spouse fear that I might have an affair if my needs are not met? Answer, yes. Nope. Your spouse should fear that you'll have an affair because you can't keep it in your pants. Right. That's the only thing that causes an affair. Okay, so let's think about this. So what women are told and what men are told in all of these books is that you have no right to say no. If you do say no, he's going to watch porn. If you do say no, he's going he's gonna to have an affair. And women hear this message all the time. Now, as Becca was saying, we looked at 12 different aspects of healthy teaching about female sexuality in our rubric. And this is the one that scored the lowest. So of Mm -hmm. all the 12, when you took a look at the average score from all of the books that we looked at, this is the one that scored the lowest. This idea that 
sex needs to be something where you consent, where it's two people who want to do something, who are choosing to do this because they're showing love to one another and it's about a mutual knowing and that people have a right to say no. Books scored extremely low on that. Yeah. So, and and it, interestingly, hardly any books even mentioned the fact that women have postpartum pain, mm-hmm. that women can have vaginismus where sex hurts. We found, I think it was about 8% of women had sexual pain to the effect that penetration was painful or impossible. Yeah, and not related to childbirth. That was not related right. to childbirth. Right. When it is related to childbirth, it's much higher. Yeah. It's um, closer to 30 yet, to 40%. Right. And yet they are reading books that say you have no right to say no. So God wants you to let yourself injure terrible pain so that your spouse can feel loved by doing something which causes you terrible pain. Exactly. And so what happens when you are in a marriage with a great guy who doesn't believe this? But right. this is what you've heard growing up. And by the way, and by the way, um, I wrote a great article, if I may say so myself, on <laughs> how that message that God wants you to endure pain so that someone else can feel loved is actually a form of sexual trauma. And I will link to that in uh, the podcast post about this too. Really, you do have to check out the podcast post. There's so much more there. So go check that out. <laughs> yes. But yeah, we... we... Like we mentioned earlier in the podcast, we've been doing focus groups with women talking about their experiences and helping kind of give their stories a voice. And one thing that we've realized again and again and again as we talk to women is that this consent issue isn't only an issue in bad, abusive marriages. Right. This is really interesting. This is interesting. And it's it's simultaneously really heartbreaking, but also offers a lot of hope. Okay. What we found is that there are many women in marriages with men who really want their wives to feel freedom in the bedroom and do not want to feel obligated and who would honestly go without sex for a long time if their wife needed it. But the wives believed that they had no choice anyway. Mm -hmm. So it's nothing that the husband did, nothing that the husband said, nothing that the husband has subtly put forward. There's no coercion. There's no forcing. But she has these beliefs that have her believing that she doesn't have a choice, even if he is giving her one. Right. And in our survey of 22,000 women, that belief that you are obligated to have sex and that you can't say no is one of the most highly correlated with lower rates of orgasm for women, with lower rates of libido, and with higher rates of sexual pain. Yeah. In fact, it was the thing that was most correlated of all the beliefs we studied. It was the most correlated with causing sexual pain. And that is something that I hope we can talk about more and we will be talking about more in the book. We're going to be delving more in depth on how to kind of fix this. But something we need to understand is that if you are in a marriage where you feel like you have a great husband, but sex is just a problem. Mm-hmm. There isn't anything your husband is particularly doing that makes you feel like he's a pig. <laughs> but sex still feels like something that you just, re- you're repulsed by. You can't, you freeze up. You feel like mm-hmm. when sex is mentioned, it's this threat. Like, oh, we have to do that again? It's, it's only been two days. How can he want it again? I thought I got at least three. 
Um, mm-hmm. One of those things you force, you kind of force yourself to do in your own head, even if you're married to a great guy. We've talked to so many women who have said that the major turning point in their sex life was when they realized they were allowed to say no, not only to sex because of they had a really good reason, but just simply because they just weren't in the mood. They were allowed mm-hmm. to just simply say, you know what, sweetie, I just can't tonight. Or they could even halfway through sex, if they're trying something new, say, you know, I I thought I would like this. This is making me not feel comfortable. Let's stop. When women realized they had the ability to say that, things changed. And it changed in a big way. This is so interesting. Yeah, that is when sex got better. Yeah, and it's actually when sex got more frequent for a lot of these women too. Or even if it didn't happen as frequently, um, it still happened with frequency. Yes. And also... The big thing that a lot of them said was that their husband didn't actually change anything he was doing. Mm-hmm. But all of a sudden, they could orgasm. Right. Even though he was doing exactly the same motions and everything, yeah. <laughs> sex suddenly started to work because it wasn't done out of coercion. And and it can be self-coercion. It can be self-coercion as Yes, well. you can be forcing yourself. And, and Kevin Lehman even says that you're supposed to force yourself. Yeah. He, he, like he actually said, I want to read this quote too. This means there may be times when you have sex out of mercy, obligation, or commitment and without any real desire. Yes, it may feel forced. It might feel planned. And you might have to stop yourself from just shoving your partner away and saying enough already. But the root issue is this. You're acting out of love. You're honoring your commitment. And what we need to say is no. No, actually no. Like what our data has shown is that if women feel like they are forcing themselves, sex becomes terrible. Well, not 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 always, but quite often sex becomes terrible. This is what can ruin sex for so many women. Or even if sex is physically pleasurable while you're during the act, the libido issues or the actually desiring it can become a lot more difficult because how can you truly desire something you don't have a choice? Whether or not you get to have. It's like um, we were talking earlier, we were discussing this podcast for a while um, to help people understand what date rape really was or what consent really was when it comes to sex, Um, especially in university campuses. The BBC, I think, came out with this example of sex is tea. Yes, and I'm going, to be, I'm going to be sharing that in tomorrow's post. I'll put it in the podcast post for this, but I'm going to be writing a bigger post about that for tomorrow on different ways we can think about consent. But yes, tell the yes, story. But the, the, the idea is if you think of sex like tea, consent becomes a lot easier. An unconscious person cannot consent to having tea. Pouring tea <laughs> down an unconscious person's throat is obviously wrong. They did not want the tea. You can also offer tea and they can say, oh, thank you. I would love some tea. And then five minutes later, say, actually, you know what? I'm not in the mood for tea after all. You wouldn't then force the tea down their throat. You wouldn't blow up and say, well, I made you this tea. You need to have the tea. That would be wrong. You simply say, we'll have tea later. As well, you can have tea. And then they can say, I would love some tea. And then you show up with green tea. And they say, oh, well, I didn't want green tea. So thank you very much. But no. And that is also all right. It it becomes very clear. And so in a marriage as well, if you are sitting there and you know that you must drink tea every single day and you don't have a choice. You're going to start hating tea. (laughs) You're going to start hating tea. Even if you genuinely like the taste of it, you're going to be dreading it. Because what if you just don't feel like tea? Whether or not you feel like tea, you have to have the tea. The tea will be poured down your throat whether or not you feel like it. And even Mm -hmm. if no one ever said you have to have the tea, if you believe that, it can Mm -hmm. still feel very unpleasant to have that tea. Right. 
And that's, and, and that's what we want people to understand is that this message needs to change. So I know that probably people are feeling pretty uncomfortable right now because they're thinking, but okay, first Corinthians seven, three to five does say, do not deprive each other except for a time. Mm-hmm. And all of these women are already not having sex. If we stop telling them that this is their duty as wives, we're going to end up with a ton of sexless marriages. But can I just say something? Because we get that um, we get that interjection a lot where men come on saying, I know that marital rape is a big deal, but also what about sexless marriages? Mm-hmm. And can I just say that if your first response to the thought that people are being raped um, is, but what about my sex life? Mm-hmm. Maybe you need to take a really good hard look at yourself. Mm-hmm. No, I hear you. I I totally agree with you. Um, and and I think too part of the issue that you were just talking about is we need to change the definition of sex. And I've talked about this in posts. I've talked about this in a podcast as well. You know, sex is not just P and V until he climaxes. Sex is is a holistic thing which needs to encompass both people's experiences and feelings, and sex should be about her pleasure and not just his pleasure. We define sex in being about his ejaculation and God does not care about the man's ejaculation absent the sexual relationship about intimacy. (laughs) And we have elevated ejaculation above all else. And I'm sorry to be so crude, but I think it's important to understand that is that what God wants is this sexual intimate relationship. Um, and, and so when we talk about sex as if it's an obligation, we actually are wrecking women's ability to experience intimacy and sex. And that's exactly right. It needs to be about intimacy and mutuality. And you can't have an intimate relationship if one or both partners can't say no to it. Yeah. In fact, I don't even see how you could read first Corinthians, like the whole point of the first Corinthians seven, three to five passage is mutuality. Exactly. It's about how your body doesn't only belong to you anymore. You know, when you do get married, you, you, what you do with your body, it does affect someone else. And what they do with their body affects you too. Like it, it, it's yeah. fully mutual. Everything that applies to the wife applies to the husband as well. Exactly. And we're not saying that you don't have some sort of say over, you know, your sex life or what your spouse does with their body. We do, you know, because you're married, you can say, hey, you're not allowed to have sex with other people. Mm-hmm. You know, like you have some semblance of kind of ownership for lack of a better term over what the other person does with their body. That's not what we're arguing against at all. But what we're saying is that that doesn't infringe on that person's rights to not be invaded upon when they don't feel safe. I think it really all comes back to what we think God is like. I really do. Because can anybody picture a God who wants to transform us to look more and more like Christ, who wants to see relationships that that, that are about servanthood and not about power? Can anyone see that kind of a God saying to a woman, you need to have sex and to meet all of his needs, regardless of how you are feeling, even if you are exhausted, even if you are postpartum, um, even if he's being mean to you, even if there's a huge distance in your relationship, even if you're grieving because your mother just died, none of that matters. You don't matter. The only thing that matters is your husband being able to ejaculate. Can anybody see God saying that? Like, what kind of a God do we think we serve? And the problem is so many people can see God saying that. 
Yeah. And that's because they don't understand Jesus, in yeah. my opinion. That's what it comes down to. If you mm-hmm. honestly believe that this is what the design for sex is, that she doesn't get to say no, that he gets to demand it whenever he wants, that if she says no, she's being a bad wife, then I just have a hard time believing that there's really understanding of who Jesus is or who he came to earth to show us how to be. Um, I, I don't think that those two things are compatible. Right. God, God loves us and God created sex to be this intimate knowing of each other, which is passionate and it's deeply personal and it's also highly pleasurable for both people. That is his design for sex. And we are not saying that sex doesn't matter in a relationship, in a marriage. None of, none of this podcast is saying that at all. But what we are saying is that the more you talk about sex as an obligation, which she has to give to him, the more you change sex in her mind so that sex becomes something really distasteful. And I think what we just want to do and what I've been trying to do so desperately is change the conversation. <laughs> you know, sex, if we, if we could talk about sex, not in terms of an obligation that she owes him or as a duty, but instead as an incredibly intimate gift that God has given you where you get to experience real passion and which has all of these benefits for both people then why would you not want to make it an important part of your marriage and let's look at how we can how we can experience sex in all of its fullness in our marriage and and let's make it into this this lifelong research project where we're going to learn more and more about sex and more and more about each other and we're going to learn how to love each other through sex and how to comfort each other through sex and how to know each other through sex and how to have fun together through sex and even how to sleep better you know after sex like let's talk about it in in those terms as something which is precious in your marriage because it brings you together and not as something which is imposed upon her, you know, by edict from above. Exactly. Because it really does lead to more satisfying marriages when that horrible toxic mentality is gone. Mm -hmm. But the scary side of that is even if it doesn't lead to more sex, even if giving your wife the ability to say no means she starts saying no, Mm-hmm. it is still the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And that is what we need to grapple with. We can't become a prosperity gospel about sex. If you do all the right things, if you have been more coercive or if your marriage has been about obligation and you decide we need to get back to Jesus and how Jesus sees this, and as a result, for a long time, sex is very infrequent, it is still the right thing to do. Yep. Yeah. Because sex is supposed to be a deep knowing. And I just want to say again that we believe in great sex. Okay. I've written the Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex. 31 Days to Great Sex is coming out this summer. Um, I I have a course on how to boost your libido so that, hey, women, we can see sex as a good thing and we can embrace it and love it because it is supposed to be wonderful. Um, But we also believe that this obligation sex message is robbing couples of great sex. Yes. And when we can start talking about sex in the proper way, where it is totally mutual, where it's about a mutual knowing, where it's a passionate thing that both people share, when it's about both people's needs, I think we're going to find that in general marriages get better. And like you said, even if they don't, it's still the right thing to do.